Time to celebrate our listeners who are having a birthday today. And on Friday, October the 27th, the following listeners will be celebrating. Barbara Senna of Clive, Edgar Robertson of Fontenelle, Patricia Crawford of Cedar Rapids, K.H. Meyer of Des Moines, and Randy Chappell of Cedar Rapids. Happy birthday to all of you. And a reminder that at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo City Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. 3 p.m. is your Cedar Rapids Gazette. 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5 p.m., you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m., the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8 p.m., you'll hear City View. At 8.30, it's Polk County Senior. 9 p.m., you can turn into Brain Trust with readings from Wired and other tech magazines. At 10 p.m., it's the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11 p.m. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Now is time for today's obituaries. There are three obituaries today. Gregory Colbin Sebo, 75, of Waukee, passed away peacefully on October 23rd. Greg was born November 11, 1947, in Waterloo. He married the love of his life, Sarah Borchardt, on June 15, 1974, recently celebrating 49 happy years together. Greg loved drinking coffee, fishing, talking with family and friends, cheering for the Hawkeyes, and drives through Big Creek State Park. He was an incredibly proud father and the best papa and grandpa Grizz to his adored grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, stepmother, and oldest daughter, Lori. Greg is survived by his wife, Sarah, uh, son, Josh, daughter, Rebecca Herrick, son, Eric Sabo, son-in-law, Chris Savon, six grandchildren, and sister, Bonnie Shelton. Per Greg's specific wishes, immediate family will gather to celebrate his life. There will not be any formal services. Greg often spoke of how blessed he was and sincerely cherished time with family. In lieu of flowers and or memorials, Greg would love for you to treat yourself and your loved ones to coffee and donuts. And always remember to make the memories and tell the stories. George N. Carnes of Des Moines was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on July 7, 1949 to Greek immigrant parents, Nicholas and Vasiliki Karnas. He attended Marquette University and graduated from Drake University and Drake Law School. Following graduation, he was in private practice before becoming an assistant Polk County attorney specializing in arson and criminal cases. George was well-respected in the legal community for his fairness. He had many friends in the sports world and enjoyed supporting them. He passed away October 21st due to complications from surgery. He is survived by his wife of 38 years, Christine, and sister Anastasia Paul Duran. 
There will be a gathering of friends on Monday, October 30th at Crow's Gateway Center, 1459 Grand Avenue, from 4.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. In lieu of flowers, please make contributions to Iowa Legal Aid. And uh, Michael James Riley uh, from Des Moines was born in Des Moines on October 26, 1944, and he died on his 79th birthday on October 26, 2023. A lifelong Des Moines resident, Mike spent his career in finance with Shearson and Morgan Stanley. In 1975, Mike was one of the four founders of the Variety Club of Iowa and Children's Charity. He was the president of Variety International. Through his involvement in charities, his children learned empathy, kindness, perseverance, and the importance of giving back to others. His family will always remember Mike as a road trip enthusiast. He traveled the country and the world. Mike especially loved visiting his children and grandchildren in New York and California. More than anything else, Mike loved spending time with his family and friends. He coached baseball and other sports for his five children. Mike is sur survived by his wife, Tina, his five children, Pat, Sean, Michael, uh, Devon, and Caitlin Bradford. He has six grandchildren and uh, two stepchildren and, uh, let's see, three step-grandchildren, um, his three siblings, Kevin Figg, Sean Fay, and Mark Riley, and his numerous nieces and nephews. He is preceded in death by his parents, Patrick and Gretchen Riley. Mike's family will greet friends beginning at 3 o'clock p.m., followed by memorial service at 4 o'clock p.m. on Sunday, October 29, at Isles Dunn's Chapel, 2121 Grand Avenue. In lieu of flowers, donations may be given to the Variety Club of Iowa. Visit www.islescares.com to express condolences. Now here's a few articles uh, identifying some of the candidates that are running for uh, election in Grimes. <clears throat> the register has been running, introducing candidates from various communities around the town, around the area, and this time it's Grimes. So first, Borcherding and Johansson run for Grimes Council. Two candidates, both incumbents, are vying for two at-large seats on the Grimes City Council, including Andrew Borcherding and Eric Johansson. The Des Moines Register asked each candidate to respond to questions on why they're running and the issues their community is facing. Their answers may be lightly edited for clarity or length. Johansson did not respond to the Register's questionnaire. The election, of course, is November the 7th. So Andrew Borcherding is age 20, or 44, excuse me, age 44. He grew up in Coulter. His current home is in Grimes. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Management Information Systems from Iowa State University and a Bachelor of Science in Transportation Logistics from Iowa State University. And his political experience, he's been a Grimes City Council member from 2020 to the present, and he's been on the was on the Grimes Library Board from 2014 to 2019. In... Also, three run for Dallas Center Grimes at-large seats. Three candidates, including incumbent Ryan Carpenter, Matthew Morin, and uh, Shaley Vandervelden, 
are running for two at-large seats on the Dallas Center Grimes School Board. Okay, this is for school board. Uh, Carpenter and Moran did not respond to the register's questionnaire. This election is also November the 7th. So here's a little bit about Shaylee Vandervelden. She's age 25. She grew up in Marion. Her current home is in Grimes. Her education includes a Bachelor of Business Administration in Administration Management with a minor in Finance from Mount Mercy University. And her political experience, she's a member of Heritage Elementary PTO for five years, co-directing the district's largest PTO event and fundraiser. Next is for uh, District 3 in Dallas Center Grimes. Two candidates are running to represent District 3 on the Dallas Center Grimes School Board, which includes Southern Grimes, incumbents Nancy Baker Curtis, and at-large member Kimberly Praska, who currently holds District 3 seat. Praska did not respond to the register's questionnaire. Here's a little bit about Nancy Baker Curtis. She's 46 years old and grew up in Minburn, now lives in Grimes. Education specialist, degree in transitional bilingual education, National Lewis University. Master's in Hispanic Literature, University of New Mexico. And a bachelor's in Spanish from University of Iowa. Her political experience, at-large Dallas Center Grimes School Board, Vice President of the ARC of Iowa, Co-Leader of Changing Spaces Iowa, Representative on Child Serves Family Advisory Council, Secretary on DCG Elementary Schools PTO Executive Board. And also in the school board elections, District 4, there are two people vying for that seat. The two candidates are Sean Cully and Meg Dickinson. First, Sean Cully is age 39. He grew up all over Iowa, but mostly in, grew up all over, but mostly in California and Iowa. His current home is Dallas Center. His education, Bachelor of Arts in Church Ministries with an associate degree in Biblical Theology. His political experience, he says, this will be my first time running for a position. Meg Dickinson is age 38. She grew up in Independence and her current home is Dallas Center. Her education from Iowa State University, a Master of Arts in English Studies from St. Cloud University. And her political experience, uh, she ran for an at-large seat on the DCG school board in 2021, and she volunteers extensively in community groups in Dallas Center. And from page four of Nation and the World, new House Speaker faces challenges. Can Johnson bring and keep Republicans together? This story from USA Today by Sudishka Kochi from Washington, D.C., after three weeks without a House Speaker, Republicans in the lower chamber came together Wednesday to elect Representative Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, to the top spot. 
Johnson, who was first elected to Congress in 2016 and served as the vice chair of the Republican Conference, succeeds Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California. The former speaker was ousted this month by a handful of hardline Republicans after he compromised with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown. As Johnson settles into the speakership, his job will not be easy. He needs to unite lawmakers to avoid a government shutdown in mid-November, address wars in Ukraine and Israel, and bring together Republican lawmakers who have been embroiled in infighting since McCarthy's reign began. Johnson said after he was elected Speaker, I want to say to the American people, on behalf of all of us here, we hear you. We know the challenges you are facing. We know that there is a lot going on in our country, domestically and abroad, and we are ready to get to work again to solve those problems. The end of his quote. Chief among the challenges Johnson faces is avoiding a government shutdown November 17 that could impact millions of Americans' lives. A shutdown means hundreds of thousands of federal workers could be furloughed and low-income families could lose access to Head Start preschool programs or see delays in nutrition assistance. To avert such a crisis, the House and Senate must pass 12 appropriations bills to keep the government's doors open. Before the previous October 1 shutdown deadline, both chambers only passed a few appropriation bills. David Bateman, a professor of policy and government at Cornell University, said, McCarthy had difficulty getting Republican votes for an appropriations bill that could pass the House. If Johnson cannot get enough Republican votes, he will need Democratic votes, which means concessions. But Bateman went on to say, but even if he gets a Republican-only bill through, that's not likely to pass the Senate or be acceptable to the president. At the end of the day, Johnson will need to pass a bill that Democrats in the White House or Senate at the very least can support. If not, there will be a shutdown, Bateman said. In a letter to his GOP colleagues, Johnson laid out a plan to at least dodge a shutdown. It included a timeline for the rest of the spending bills, and a potential stopgap measure that would temporarily fund the government until either January 15 or April 15. Mark Harkins, a senior fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University, said, McCarthy was able to get a continuing resolution, but it cost him the speakership. It is unclear to me if the dynamic that forced that scenario has changed. Another challenge Johnson faces is how he will garner support for President Joe Biden's request to Congress for funding to support Israel in its war against Hamas and to support Ukraine against Russia's invasion. Johnson has not indicated that he is in favor of additional Ukraine aid. He voted against two supplemental appropriations bills last year and in September that provided the funding. Johnson uh, said at On a post on X, formerly known as Twitter, American taxpayers have sent over $100 billion in aid to Ukraine in the last year. They deserve to know if the Ukrainian government is being entirely forthcoming and transparent about the use of this massive sum of taxpayer resources. Johnson has a difficult needle to thread to reach accommodations with Democrats in the Senate and White House while not losing a governing majority in the House, Um, He added, 
The pressure to not fund Ukraine from a segment of House Republicans will be intense, but that will fly in the face of a majority of members of the House which want the funding approved. Again, from Mark Harkins. A staunch supporter of Donald Trump, Johnson might also face pressure from the former president, who has criticized Ukraine efforts. However, Johnson has stood for supporting Israel. After Biden's Oval Office addressed to the nation last week, calling for support for Israel and Ukraine, the Louisiana Republican acknowledged his speech on X. He wrote, at Joe Biden's address to the nation tonight only confirms the urgent need for the United States to act in support of our great ally Israel as they fight against Hamas terrorists. We must elect a speaker so the House can take all necessary action to end Hamas forever, Johnson said. But tensions between moderate and hardline conservatives remain. Harkin said, the question is not if, but when, a segment of the Republican caucus turns against him. Speaker McCarthy was able to get a debt limit deal through, but when he went back to the well and tried to keep the government open, that ended his speakership. Democrats may be willing to help, but their price may be steeper than Speaker Johnson is willing to pay, Harkin said. The House is not known for being a, part of, a bipartisan institution, he noted, and he does not expect Johnson uh, to change that. And again, from Harkins, he is one of, if not the most, conservative speaker we have had in a long time. While that got him into the speaker's chair, it will not make it easy for him to reach across the aisle to find compromise solutions. The House Republican Conference did not select Speaker Johnson to work with Democrats. They selected him to fight to the end for conservative issues. Israeli troops conduct brief raid in Gaza. Begin to prepare for an expected incursion. This is written by Najib Jobain, Karim Cheyeb, and Amy Taibol of the Associated Press. The, the dateline is Rafa, Gaza Strip. Israeli troops and tanks briefly raided northern Gaza overnight into Thursday, the military said, striking several militant targets in order to prepare the battlefield before a widely expected ground invasion after more than two weeks of devastating airstrikes. The raid came after the UN warned that it's on the verge of running out of fuel in the Gaza Strip, forcing it to sharply curtail the relief efforts. Gaza has been under a brutal siege, running out of food, water, and medicine since Hamas's bloody rampage across southern Israel earlier this month ignited the war. The rising death toll in Gaza is unprecedented in the decades-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The health ministry in Hamas-ruled Gaza said Thursday more than 7,000 Palestinians have died in the conflict, a figure that could not be independently verified. Even greater loss of life could come if Israel launches a ground offensive aimed at crushing Hamas, which has ruled Gaza since the year 2007 and survived four previous wars with Israel. Israeli airstrikes in the southern city of Khan Yunus leveled more than eight homes belonging to an extended family, killing at least 15 people. Ambulances raced to the scene as dust from the collapsing buildings hung in the air. The blast zone was a chaotic wasteland of crumbled concrete and twisted metal. Rescuers carried wounded people covered in gray dust. 
The body of a boy was dug out from beneath a concrete slab where his head had come to rest next to the foot of another person entombed in the wreckage. The Israeli military says it only strikes militant targets and accuses Hamas of operating among civilians in densely populated Gaza. Palestinian militants have fired rocket barrages into Israel's since the war began. One struck a residential building in the central city of Petatikva without wounding anyone. The conflict has threatened to ignite a wider war across the region. Hezbollah, an Iranian-funded ally of Hamas, operating out of Lebanon, has repeatedly traded fire with Israel along the border. Israel has carried out airstrikes in Lebanon, Syria, and even the occupied West Bank. Israel has vowed to crush Hamas's capacity to govern Gaza or threaten Israel again, while also saying it doesn't want to reoccupy the territory from which it withdrew soldiers and settlers in the year 2005. That could prove a daunting challenge since Hamas is deeply rooted in Palestinian society with political and charity organizations as well as a formidable armed wing. Benny Gantz, a retired general and a member of Israel's war cabinet, said any possible ground offensive would be only one stage in a long-term process that includes security, political, and social aspects that will take years. The, comp the campaign will soon ramp up with greater force, he added. During the overnight raid, soldiers killed fighters and destroyed militant infrastructure and anti-tank missile launching positions, the military said. It said that no Israelis were wounded. There was no immediate confirmation of any Palestinian casualties. Israeli Rear Admiral, Admiral Daniel Hagari, a military spokesman, said the limited incursion was part of our preparations for the next stages of the war. Israel also said it had also carried out around 250 airstrikes across Gaza in the last 24 hours, targeting tunnel shafts, rocket launches, launchers, excuse me, and other militant infrastructure. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 7,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war, a figure that includes the disputed toll from an explosion at a hospital. That is more than three times the number of Palestinians killed in the six-week-long Gaza war in the year 2014. The ministry's toll includes more than 2,900 minors and more than 1,500 women. On Wednesday, the wife, son, daughter, and grandson of Wael Dado, a veteran Al Jazeera correspondent in Gaza, were killed in an Israeli strike. Dado and other mourners attended the funerals on Thursday wearing the blue flak jackets used by reporters in the Palestinian territories. The fighting has killed more than 1,400 people in Israel, mostly civilians, slain during the initial Hamas attack, according to the Israeli government. Hamas also holds at least 224 hostages in Gaza. The warning by the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, over depleting fuel supplies raised alarm that the humanitarian crisis could quickly worsen. Gaza's population has also been running out of food, water, and medicine. About 1.4 million of Gaza's 2.3 million residents 
have fled their homes, with nearly half of them crowded into UN shelters. Hundreds of thousands remain in northern Gaza despite Israel ordering them to evacuate to the south, saying those who remain might be considered accomplices of Hamas. In recent days, Israel has let more than 70 trucks with aid enter from Egypt, which aid workers say is insufficient and only a tiny fraction of what was being brought in before the war Israel before the war. Israel is still barring deliveries of fuel needed to power generators, saying it believes that Hamas will take it. This is a small amount of what is required to a drop in the ocean, said William Schomburg, an official with the International Committee of the Red Cross in Gaza. We are trying to establish a pipeline. UNRWA has been sharing its own fuel supplies so that trucks can distribute aid Bakeries can feed people in shelters, water can be desalinated, and hospitals can keep incubators, life support machines, and other vital equipment working. If it continues doing all of that, fuel will run out by Thursday, so the agency is deciding how to ration its supply, UNRWA spokeswoman Tamara Al-Rafai told the Associated Press. More than half of Gaza's primary health care facilities and roughly a third of its hospitals have stopped functioning, the World Health Organization said. At Gaza City's Al-Shifa Hospital, the lack of medicine and clean water have led to alarming infection rates, the group Doctors Without Borders said. Amputations are often required to prevent infection from spreading in the wounded, he said. Hamas's surprise attack on October the 7th in southern Israel stunned the country with its brutality, its unprecedented toll, and the failure of intelligence agencies to know it was coming. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a speech Wednesday night that he will be held accountable, but only after Hamas was defeated. We will get to the bottom of what happened, he said. And here are some briefs from uh, Nation and World Extra. Former President Li Qigong, who led China's economy, dies at 68. This from Beijing. Former Premier Li Keqiang, China's top economic official for a decade, died Friday of a heart attack. He was 68. Li was China's number two leader from 2013 to 23 and was an advocate for private business but was left with little authority after President Xi Jinping made himself the most powerful Chinese leader in decades and tightened control over the economy and society. CCTV said Li had been resting in Shanghai recently and had a heart attack on Thursday. He died at 12.10 a.m. Friday. Li, an English-speaking economist, was considered a contender to succeed then-Communist Party leader Hu Jintao in 2013, was, but was passed over in favor of Xi. Xi, <laughs> reversing the Hu era's consensus-oriented leadership, Xi centralized powers in his own hands, leaving Li and others on the party's ruling seven-member standing committee with little influence. As the top economic official, Li promised to improve conditions for entrepreneurs who generate jobs and wealth. 
but the ruling party under Xi increased the dominance of state industry and tightened control over tech and other industries. Foreign companies said they felt unwelcome after Xi and other leaders called for economic self-reliance, expanded an anti-spying law, and raided offices of consulting firms. Li was dropped from the standing committee at a party congress in October 2022, despite being two years below the informal retirement age of 70. And radio host Elder ends Republican presidential bid and endorses Trump. Conservative talk radio host Larry Elder announced Thursday he was ending his 2024 Republican campaign for president and endorsing former President Donald Trump. I'm sorry, Donald Trump. Elder, who sought to replace California Governor Gavin Newsom in a failed 2021 recall effort, said in a statement that he had made the, quote, difficult decision to end his bid after careful consideration and consultation with his team and to throw his support behind Trump. Trump's leadership, he said, was, quote, instrumental in advancing conservative America first principles and policies that have benefited our great nation, end quote. He said now was the time to unite behind Trump to beat President Joe Biden. He also said he hoped his campaign had shined a light on the issues important to him, including fatherlessness, fighting crime, and opposition to the idea that the U.S. is a racist country. Elder is the fourth major candidate to suspend or end his 2024 GOP bid following Miami Mayor Francis Charvez, former Texas Congressman Will Hurd, and businessman Perry Johnson. Johnson also packed Trump on his way out of the race while Hurd endorsed former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Judith Linden and Scott Splavik. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are myself, Ben Stein, my good friend Jim Hoffman. We'll now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and the USA Today. Here's Jim with our next article. Thanks, Ben. And uh, we're starting off this morning with the USA Today uh, opinion page. And um, we have an opinion written by Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Um, he practices general surgery in Phoenix and is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And he writes, uh, CVS is pulling this decongestant. You may have it at home. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just before cold and flu season is set to kick off, the Food and Drug Administration's advisory panel last month reported that an oral decongestant Americans have relied on for nearly 20 years is no better than a placebo. This ingredient, found in popular versions of Sudafed, Dayquil, and other medications, has gained popularity since Congress made it difficult for people to obtain an effective oral decongestant. Now law lawmakers can correct that mistake before the winter cold and flu season arrives in full force. In an effort to shut down homegrown meth labs in which people converted oral decongestants containing pseudoephrodine into methamphetamine, uh, Congress 18 years ago passed the Combat Methamphetamine uh, Epidemic Act. Under the CMEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration ordered all pseudo ephedrine containing products moved behind the counter and required pharmacists to register and track people who purchased them. The DEA placed strict limits on the number and dosage of pseudoephedrine uh, uh, containing products uh, patients may obtain in 30 days. Until last year, Oregon and Mississippi had required residents to get a doctor's prescription. But as often happened to the meth lab cooks, the methamphetamine law has become a spectacular fail, backfiring on its creators and harming innocent bystanders. Lawmakers should admit it was a mistake and get rid of it. When the combat methamphetamine epidemic took effect in 2006, there were only two over-the-counter oral decongestants on the market, uh, exafin and pseudoephedrine. A third, phenylpropanolamine, was fading from the market when stu after studies uh, associated it with hemorrhage strokes. The CMEA effectively narrowed patients' choices to one phenylphrene, so their customers could continue buying their products over-the-counter and avoid the stigma of registering to purchase pseudoephedrine. Uh, many drug makers substituted pseudoephedrine when phenylphrene, uh, for example, Sudafed, which manufactured 
pseudofedrine came out with pseudofed PE. Uh, phenylphrene replaced pseudofedrine in NyQuil uh, Sinex nighttime sinus relief. Allergy drug makers did not follow makers of cold, follow makers of cold medicines. Yet the makers of Claritin D, a non-sedating antihistamine combined with pseudoephedrine, chose not to switch to phenylephrine. The the chemists ran tests on phenylephrine and found it ineffective when taken orally. They decided to stay behind the counter. Their competitors, Zyrtec and Allegra, made the same decision. Then in 2007, two academic pharmacists from the University of Florida looked at the studies the FDA relied on to declare oral phenylephrine safe and effective in the 1970s. They concluded that phenylephrine was no better than placebo. A year had passed since the DEA moved pseudoephedrine, an effective oral decongestant, behind the counter. This was not a good time to tell millions of cold and allergy sufferers that the drugs they buy over the counter probably won't work. Responding to the pharmacist's petition, the FDA convened uh, a panel that determined there was murky evidence phenylphrine worked orally, but the evidence was inconclusive. By 2015, when the University of Florida pharmacist saw the results of studies by Merck and other drug companies showing that oral phenylphrine doesn't work even at high doses, they asked the FDA to take oral phenylphrine off the shelves. After the American Pharmacists Association and other groups joined the petitioners, the FDA convened uh, an advisory panel eight years later in April. On September 12th, decades after the FDA proclaimed oral phenylphrine uh, safe and effective, the panel concluded that oral phenylphrine is no better than a placebo. Unlike pseudoephedrine, digestive juices break down the phenylphrine before it can be absorbed into the system and work. It doesn't take a conspiracy theorist to wonder whether the FDA didn't want to undermine the newly minted Combat Methamphetamine uh, Epidemic Act by telling cold and allergy sufferers they will, uh, will all be facing limits on their access to oral decongestants. And it wouldn't be the first time politics influenced the FDA. It took more than a decade and a federal court order to get the FDA to let women of all ages buy Plan B emergency contraceptives over-the-counter in 2013. And academic physicians and FDA advisory panels had urged it to do. Meanwhile, how's the CMEA working to combat the methamphetamine epidemic? The Mexican drug cartels soon took advantage of the new 
hold the law created in black market meth and figured out other ways to make methamphetamine more efficiently. One way is using phenyl-2-propanone, also called phenylactone or P2P. Meth-related drug deaths uh, per 100,000 thus increased nationally by 1,400% between 2006 and 2020. Repeal ineffective law and let us breathe again. More than half of American households trust and use oral phenylprene, accounting for an estimated $1.76 billion in sales last year. The FDA hasn't yet decided to officially inform them they are wasting their money on phenylphrene or to order it off the shelves. If it does, expect cold and allergy sufferers to be very upset when they learn how inconvenient the government will make it for them to get relief from pseudoephedrine. Last week, CVS announced that it will begin voluntarily pulling oral phenylphrene decongestants off its store shelves. Congress can help the FDA uh, extricate itself from this disaster. The CMEA isn't working. It helped to increase meth-related deaths. Congress should repeal it. Then drugs like Sudafed, Claritin D, and others can return to the shelves and make America breathe again. Thanks, Jim. This next opinion from Kathy Kiley, opinion contributor entitled, Nebraska Governor Stokes Hate Fails Democracy. When I moved into the classroom full-time after four decades on the beat and in newsrooms, I thought I was well-equipped to prepare a new generation of journalists in America for the challenges that await them. I was wrong. It's not the pedagogy that's flummoxed me. It's not the technology. It's the hostility that I now find myself trying to coach my students to rise above. Weeks after I arrived on the campus of the Missouri School of Journalism, a student on a routine assignment was spat upon in 2018 and called fake news. A year or so ago, two student reporters for our NPR affiliate at a political rally to which the station had been invited were told to go back to China. We never publicized the incident, but did call it to the attention of a party leader who apologized to the editors in private conversations. Questioned about his hog farms, Pillin answers with hogwash. Now it's happened again. My colleagues at the Missouri School of Journalism and I have learned that one of our most outstanding young alumni has become the latest target of this sort of hate speech. Only this time, it did not come from some random ignoramus. In a radio interview, Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen was asked to respond to a story written by Flatwater Free Press reporter Yen Shi Chu. It detailed high levels of the pollutant nitrate found in the groundwater near his family's hog operations. First, Pillen said he hadn't read the story. Then he added, all you got to do is look at the author. The author is from communist China. 
What more do you need to know? Way to change the subject, Governor. Instead of trying to respond to legitimate questions raised by a journalist, smear the messenger. I'll leave it to the Yen Shi editor, Matt Wynn, to tell you what more you need to know about this fine young journalist who grew up in Guangzhou, earned her master's degree at the University of Missouri-Columbia, and joined the Flatwater Free Press in Omaha two years ago. He sums it up as well as any of her admiring mentors could. Let's focus on the tactics used to question her. Pillins Gambit Trying to discredit a story by taking aim at the reporter's character was a page straight out of the dictator's handbook. Consider. In Russia, Vladimir Putin jails Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich as a spy. Now comes news that Putin has upped his hostage count, arresting Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty reporter Alsu Komesheva on a similar charge. In Niger, coup leaders accuse journalist Samira Sebu of treason. In Guatemala, the regime sends Jose Ruben Zamora, the publisher of a leading newspaper, on trumped-up charges of fiscal irregularities. In the Philippines, former President Rodrigo Duterte slanders online and in court against Maria Ressa were so outrageous that her courage in the face of them won Ressa a Nobel Peace Prize. We need to ask ourselves why tactics that are common in non-democratic countries are now being deployed right here in the home of the free, the brave, and the First Amendment. Wake up and smell the rot, America. There is a formula that fits each of these cases. People with money and power are trying to mobilize populist resentment, resentment that, by all rights, should be aimed at them, toward journalists. In other words, the elites label the very people who are calling out their privilege the elites. To accomplish this jujitsu, they use inflammatory code words, words such as communist and China, words that elicit strong emotions and distract from real issues. All too often it works. Stoking hate is a lot easier than answering legitimate questions. Because I know that, I thought long and hard about writing this piece. I know it could inflame an army of trolls for whom, the record shows, women journalists are favorite targets. More sobering, I know that because Yen Shi is young and Asian, in addition to being a woman, she'll be more of a magnet. In 2021, according to one report, hate crimes against Asian communities in the United States went up 339%. According to the latest national survey commissioned by Stop AAPI Hate, half of Asian American and Pacific Islander respondents said they have experienced discrimination. Either Pillen doesn't know this and is inexcusably clueless about the demons of hate that his intemperate speech could stir up, or worse, he does know it, and is hoping it will aid and abet his campaign of intimidation. In the America where I grew up, people are supposed to be judged, not by some accident of birth, but by the merits of their work and the content of their character. On those counts, Yin Shi scores way higher than her detractor. She's willing to put herself on the line for that most American of values.
the ability to speak truth to power. What counts is not where Yen Shi was born, a matter over which she had no control, but where she chose to practice her profession, in a country where the press is, so far, free. She chose to be trained at a school that's the home of journalism's first code of ethics. That code, written more than a century ago, presciently advises journalists to be unswayed by the appeal of privilege or the clamor of the mob. Score, Yen Shi Shu, an A+. Pillin can call her all the names he wants. This former teacher is proud to call her and her editor Matt Wynn. Hashtag Mizu Made. Thanks, Ben. And uh, we turn our attention to sports from the Des Moines Register. And we'll look at high school football playoffs. <coughs> it's uh, at the end of the season, and the uh, pods are set for the first round of playoffs, uh, second round for Iowa's smaller classes, and the 112 remaining teams will compete in the round of 16 for a spot in the quarterfinals. Um, so here is Alyssa Hertel uh, writing for the Register, uh, her predictions for the round of 16. Um, Johnston at Ankeny tonight. The last time these two teams met, the Hawks walked away with a 16-10 win. It was all about turnovers in that matchup. But Ankeny's defense played phenomenal football in what Hawks coach Jeff Bauer described as Ankeny's best game of the year. Johnston is a different team since that meeting, so this is anybody's game. But she picks Ankeny 21-16. to Ankeny Centennial at Waukee Northwest. The Wolves already beat Centennial once this season in a 17-7 victory back on October 13th. On paper, these teams are an even matchup that could make for really fun first-round game. Northwest has won all three games between these two programs, and we expect a tight result in this one. She picks Northwest 20-14. Then we have Valley at Pleasant Valley. This has not been the season everyone expected from Valley, but the Tigers have fared okay while traversing one of the toughest schedules in the state. Pleasant Valley hasn't lost since its season opener, and holds a 4-1 to record against other teams that made the playoffs. So, uh, the pick is Pleasant Valley, 30-17. to Linmar at Southeast Polk. Even though we think Stone Morgan, Linmar's quarterback, is the name of a champion, that won't be enough to take down the reigning state champions. The Rams' defense flexed its skills against Dowling a couple weeks ago, and that unit should come up big against Linmar. So Southeast Polk is chosen 49-17. to Iowa City High at Bettendorf. The last matchup between these two programs is fresh, considering Iowa City High and Bettendorf played each other in the regular season finale. Led by Bobby Bacon's arm, the Little Hawks pulled off the 42-21 upset. But we expect that the Bulldogs will leave the rematch victorious. Vic, uh, Bettendorf is chosen, 36-30. Cedar Rapids-Kennedy at Cedar Falls. 
these two programs met on October 13th, and Cedar Falls won by a field goal. Both teams have big-name recruits. Both teams want to win. We're giving the Cougars the slight advantage in this one because beating the same team twice in the same season isn't easy. So Kennedy has chosen 21-20. to Prairie at Waukee. The Warriors might be one of the more under-the-radar 7-2 and teams. They've got a chance to move on. If the defense steps up and the offense plays with ball security in mind, Prairie has pieces on both sides of the ball, though, so don't count the Hawks out. Prairie has chosen 23-14. to Sioux City East at Dowling. The Maroons were unbeatable until they met Southeast Polk on October 13th, and even then, it took three overtime periods to decide a winner. Dowling eased past another Sioux City team in the regular season finale, and this should be an easy first-round matchup for the Maroons. Dowling is chosen 42-7. to Then we have Norwalk at Glenwood. We said that it's difficult to beat the same team twice, especially in back-to-back contests. But Glenwood seems to have things figured out. Norwalk will need a really strong performance from the defense to get past the Rams. Glenwood is chosen 38-27. And finally, we have Ballard at North Polk. The Bombers beat North Polk 7-6 in a wild matchup early in the regular season. In the week since, the Comets rose to the top of 4A. Eli Rausch is something special and scored the only touchdown for Ballard in the September game. But we'd assume that North Polk is focused on shutting him down completely in this matchup, so North Polk is chosen 14-10. to Good luck to all of our high school teams in the playoffs this, this evening. Thanks, Jim. We'll move to Dear Abby. I'll read the first. Jim can read the second. The first, entitled Family Has Stuck Together Despite Many Differences. Dear Abby, I am one of nine children who all still get along. One sibling belongs to a religious order. At least one, for sure, is not a Christian. One is a born-again Christian. One of us is gay and married. We are not all of the same political persuasion. Yet somehow, after all these years, we have managed to get along and still gather for family fun, whether it's a holiday or just a cookout. We don't all live in the same state, but more often than not, most of us are there. There's no secret to us still loving as well as liking each other. We simply respect each other's opinions and realize that although we don't always agree, it's not worth cutting out of our lives someone we have known forever. I can't imagine losing even one sibling over a silly disagreement. That's not to say we haven't had arguments, because we have certainly had our share, but we simply take the high road and agree to disagree. I love my siblings with all my heart. Just wanted to share an uplifting note with you. Signed, No Problems Here. Dear No Problems, Most of the mail I receive concerns relationships that's fractured because of a lack of respect for someone's feelings. Thank you for your, frankly, refreshing letter. If more people emulated your family's example, this world would be a happier, less complicated place in which to live. 
I wish your attitude were contagious. And our second letter, Dear Abby, <clears throat> I have been dating Paul for several years. He lives about an hour away, and we see each other a few weekends a month. I know he loves me. A few months ago, his dog suddenly died from cancer. It was traumatic because Bruiser was his best friend. Paul has been different since Bruiser's death. He has zero interest in anything physical. To me, touch is important, not just sex. There's shared intimacy in holding someone's hand or kissing. I feel like a plant that's, a wil that's wilting with no sun. I know Paul is struggling, but I don't know how to help him through. We talked about it once, but other than acknowledging he's struggling, he has done nothing further. I don't want to force the issue, but time is precious. I know what it's like to struggle with depression, and I recognize the signs, but he won't get help. How can I support him through this and get over my selfishness? And signed, In the Dark, in New York. Dear In the Dark, tell Paul you know he is hurting because since Bruiser's death, his behavior has changed. Explain that he may be depressed and with good reason and that it might help him to contact his veterinarian and ask if there are grief support groups for pet owners who have lost their furry family member. His vet may be able to suggest one or more. However, if that doesn't appeal to Paul, he should consider talking to his doctor because he is exhibiting some classic signs of depression. After that, the ball's in his court. Thanks, Jim. And this quick note before we close, at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 each day. 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Pareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear City View. At 8.30, it's Polk County Senior. 9 p.m., tune in to Brain Trust with readings from Wired and other tech magazines. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Ben Stein and my partner at the microphone, my good friend Jim Hoffman. Earlier, you heard Judith Linden and Scott Splaybeck. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.